Hey, this is a Hakawati production. My guest today anchors CNBC's Capital Connection in Abu Dhabi. She's known for her tough questions and amazing interviews with some of the Middle East's biggest political figures. She's really well-versed in regional affairs and doesn't mince words even when she's on the air. I couldn't be happier to have her on the show. Please welcome Hadley Gamble. Hi, Hadley. How's it going? Wonderful. How are you? Fantastic. We're here in Lebanon, as you know. Um, you know, things are going great. That is good to hear. <laughs> so we're in touch with you now, although I've been a f you know, fan of your work for quite a while now. But we're in touch with you now because you're a speaker at the Women Digital Summit um, Festival. And so I'm curious, how has your experience been as a woman journalist in the Middle East? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I came out here back in 2009 um, as a writer and producer and eventually made my way to becoming a non-air correspondent and then an anchor for CNBC. So it's been quite the journey. Um, you know, depending on where you are, the, the social and cultural norms can vary. Um, being based mostly in the GCC countries, I have to say it's been a pretty positive experience overall. Um, you know, when I started going to Saudi Arabia about a decade ago now, you know, Women journalists from from Western countries did not spend much time in Saudi Arabia, um, and I think that there was always an element of um, uh, a surprise in, in uh, interacting with government officials and 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 women in business there, but also one of of acceptance. So, in the sense that I've been spending so much time um, concentrating on the GCC countries at a time, frankly, um, until quite recently, when you know, as a Western journalist, you'd, you'd tell people at an assignment desk in London or New York that you found, you know, Saudi interesting or UAE interesting or et cetera. And they look at you like you had seven heads because they didn't really understand the connection between what happened in the GCC countries with all of that money and what was happening in countries like Lebanon, like Syria, like uh, Egypt and elsewhere. So I think that making that connection um, with the GCC to the Levant has been something that I've been really passionate about and interested in um, over the last decade or so. But in terms of a woman, a woman's place in the Middle East, I think it's, it's an ever, ever evolving you know, story. Um, we've seen obviously Saudi opening up in recent years. Um, and that's been a really fascinating story to cover, but in terms of women in the Levant, I mean, particularly in, in Lebanon specifically, you know, it's, it's such a two-sided coin, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it's such an incredible open society, um, in so many ways. And then at the same time, you have laws that restrict, you know, women in terms of marriage and divorce and, uh, you know, domestic servitude that are, are so, so incredibly backward that it's difficult to contemplate if you're not living there and understanding it. Um, so on the one hand, I've faced uh, the discrimination that I think you can often get in the streets when you're when you're covering this as a field producer or covering these stories um, on the ground as a reporter. You know the cat calls and and the general um, disenfranchisement, I guess you'd say, of women um, in that sense. But on the other hand, I've found it to be an incredibly welcoming and rewarding environment, particularly. Um, with the women that I've met and worked with through the years. Yeah, I agree with you on all of those things. Uh, and I feel that as foreigners, you and me are kind of privileged in a way. Um, but in terms of rights and equality, women still have such a long way to go in the region. Um, so, but, totally. Yeah, but let's talk business, since that's the topic you cover over at CNBC and also our main focus here on the podcast. You've been covering the U.S. election night and day for the last, what, couple of weeks? 
Uh, I'm sure longer a than month. that. Yeah. So <laughs> it's it's yeah. like an, a never-ending election, right? Um, so what do you think of Biden's win? You know, politics is a blood sport. And I started covering politics uh, back in 2003 when I moved from Miami to Washington to start working for ABC News. My first job was as an intern in the political unit. Um, and at that time, you know, it was, the Internet was still I know this sounds insane, but it was still pretty new. We used to make fun of people who had, you know, blogs because we're like, that isn't real news. Um, but at the time, the job that I had in the beginning was to literally look at everything that was happening with the papers in the southeast used to be, you know, newspapers were very, very area specific. And there were huge dailies, you know, throughout the United States, for example. And so my job was to, to really watch those writers and watch how, you know, these elections were playing out from, you know, county to county, state to state. And what I found really interesting about um, the Biden win was that, you know, we really, really got back to that by county by county voting um, analysis that, you know, the polls totally missed. Uh, as we saw the last time around, they didn't understand that there would be um, such a big um, support for Trump in that last election. They didn't understand the country. And we saw it playing out yet again. Um, so I think obviously uh, the pollsters are going to have to do a lot of soul searching about how they <laughs> conduct their business. But also, I think it showed that, you know, the Democratic Party thought that they'd have this massive blue wave, which they didn't have. And I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding that the Democrats have of what's happening in America today. And for the Republicans, it's one of those sort of navel-gazing kind of um, experiences because, you know, the, the strong base that, that President Trump had over the last four years, you know, it, it only served to solidify his base. And I think what's been interesting, actually, those exit polls that you saw initially showed that President Trump didn't make any headway. Uh, with white voters. He made headway elsewhere. He made it with minority voters. And that really spoke to the economics of the situation, right? Because you did see a reaction to his economic policies. So what's going to be really interesting going forward is if the Biden administration, um, Kamala Harris as his vice president, can galvanize, um, you know, that base the Democratic, the traditional Democratic base, which is also blue collar workers, right? They've still got to go back to their original base as well as tap in to all of the minority base, to, you know, the entire Silicon Valley folks who've been giving them money now for, for decades. It's going to be fascinating to watch how all of this plays out. Yeah, well, and it's still playing out. Trump hasn't conceded yet. Let's not yeah. forget. So, but we're all a little worried <laughs> about himself in the White House. Yeah, well, well we don't know to address or not address it. Yeah, definitely. So, people in the U.S. obviously are most concerned about their livelihoods, having jobs, the economy. Uh, but people in the Middle East are watching. You know, have been watching the election. They're concerned about how this is going to affect this region, especially in light of what's been happening over the last uh, few months. Uh, you know, all the uh, the strategy that's being kind of rolled out by the Trump administration and uh, his, uh, you know, his team. So what's your take on this? I know you've been doing a lot of interviews with people all around the world. And, and what are you making of all this? Do you think it's going to do you think it's going to put a stick in the wheels of the current uh, kind of political uh, wrangling that's going on? I think it's going to be fascinating, honestly. I mean, it, it's difficult to understand how, you know, this is going to really play out because on the one hand, you have, you know, the first 100 days of the Biden administration already, we're hearing talks of, you know, rejoining the Paris Agreement in terms of climate change. Obviously, this is something that um, the Democratic Party and the Biden ticket have put at the forefront of, of their policy, right? So this is going to be interesting because it's essentially going to mean that 
GCC countries, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Kuwait, others who are petrodollar economies are going to have to get in bed with an administration now for four to possibly eight years um, that does not see the future of energy uh, with oil and gas at the forefront, right? So I think what's interesting is already you're seeing uh, moves from Abu Dhabi, for example, and the broader UAE in terms of their energy transition um, to, to push forward in terms of allow, allowing for foreign investors. We saw that today with um, the Abu Dhabi energy company, Taka. They decided to allow for foreign investment. Adnoc, the Abu Dhabi national oil company, has already decided to bring in foreign investors and allow foreign investment in you know, their pipelines, which was something that was you know totally unheard of just a few years ago. And that really just signals to me that they knew that this was coming and they already had a plan in place to, to kind of get on board there. And they want to be the leaders of that energy transition, right? They don't want to be left out in the cold. So, of course, that opens up avenues for OPEC members to have a better relationship with Washington than perhaps they've had in the past. They certainly had someone that they felt that they could speak to in President Trump, at least with regards to the price side of things. But in terms of that ongoing dialogue, this is just a way for the GCC countries um, to strengthen their ties with Washington. What's going to be also interesting, of course, to see how the price of oil is impacted over time by the COVID-19 pandemic. Obviously, we saw a boost in oil prices as a result of this potential move on, you know, COVID-19's vaccines. But at the same time, you know, that doesn't mean that tomorrow we're all going to get back on an airplane, right? So that means that depressed prices are going to impact this part of the world for a long time. What does that mean for the rest of the Middle East? Well, that means a lot of difference in terms of investment in places like Jordan and Egypt and Lebanon and elsewhere. They have less cash to throw around. Now, on the one hand, that could be potentially a negative for those economies. On the other hand, it's a positive potentially for the foreign policy of those economies, right? Because if there's less cash to throw around in places like Lebanon, for example, it could mean that you actually have a little bit more autonomy in your choices. But then there's the other side of all of this, and this is Iran, right? So JCPOA, President Biden, he was a big proponent, Vice President Biden at the time was a big proponent of the JCPOA. And that's the question going forward is how quickly will this administration reach out to Iran? Will things begin to open up? Will they be back in the international financial system, which means that companies from Europe to the United States to elsewhere can get involved in the Iranian economy again? Mm. How quickly they can come back online in terms of, frankly, their oil? You know, that's been off the system for a while now. How's that going to impact oil prices? Would that cause friction with Gulf Arab economies. All of these things are, are are business stories, right? But they're also foreign policy and geostrategic stories. Exactly. So, so for us, this is this is one of those amazing moments where you can really take a step back and think about how the business side of things, the economics, are going to literally impact the daily lives of people everywhere in this region, particularly in Lebanon, obviously, with Hezbollah. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, there's the, the whole political and economic are totally intertwined. And we know that the Trump administration has been working with MBS in Saudi Arabia and MBZ in the UAE since 2017 to put pressure on Iran and kind of push them out. And that's exactly what they've done. And obviously, all these peace deals that they're doing in the region, you know, they're not, you know, just for everyone to be singing Kumbaya. There's obviously some economic interest Absolutely. behind everything that they're doing. Your yeah, definitely. So totally. and there was a fantastic article about this in the New York Times, by the way. I don't know if you've read it, but it really goes in depth and, and you really get to understand what's going on behind the scenes. So I'm wondering if, if you think that Biden coming in, this de Democratic uh, administration, 
if their plan will really be that different or is it mostly on the surface? And how do you think uh, there's a lot of talk, you know, question about how he's going to handle Saudi Arabia because Trump has kind of uh, closed his eyes to all the things that, you know, Americans have been critical about, um, including, you know, events, as you know, that have happened there. Um, do you think that Biden will um, have a different relationship with Saudi Arabia? I think in terms of what happened with the Trump administration, I don't think his eyes were closed. I think his eyes were wide open from the very beginning. And he made a very, very strategic choice, which was um, the maximum pressure campaign. You know, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. Um, this is a generation, remember, he and President-elect Biden come from the same generation, which is that sort of um, hostage crisis the Iranian hostage crisis mentality, right? They were in their prime in 79 when all of these things were happening. And I think that, that the takeaway there is, you know, he, he chose one friend over another and decided that, you know, with the eyes very much open, that it was a safer bet to be in bed with Saudi Arabia than it was to be with Iran. And he felt, you know, his quote unquote negotiating strategy. Um, I never watched The Apprentice, by the way, <laughs> but I, I think we've seen it all playing out over the last four years of U.S. foreign policy, right? Um, his strategy was maximum pressure. And it was, we put all of this pressure on, but hey, we're open to talking to you if you ever want to seriously come to the table. That's going to be completely upended by the Biden administration. The question will be, of course, how they manage to do that. Because, you know, we can talk all we want to about resuscitating JCPOA, but that's very, very difficult because the Iranians have moved very far forward in terms of what they're doing with their nuclear program. So that's going to have to be completely rethought, right? Like the, the, the barriers to entry there are going to have to change. What's been interesting to see in this region covering it for the last decade, right? First Bush, then Obama, and then Trump. President Obama, via very different means, was already walking away from this region. I remember sitting in Bahrain, actually, at a Manama dialogue with a IISS um, in the very beginning, really, of the Obama administration. And they had talked about their pivot to Asia. And I sat in that room with foreign ministers from all across the GCC countries. And there was literal fear about what does that mean? Does that mean he's taking away the Fifth Fleet? Does that mean the air base in Qatar goes? What does this actually mean for us? Um, you know, is the U.S. basically taking their eye off the prize here? Because if you think about the GCC specifically, this was a backwater for decades, right? Until all of that oil wealth um, culminated in the sort of international cities that you see today. And frankly, for a place like Dubai, obviously, they didn't have the oil wealth. So they had to do what they did, which was to make it a strategic and international travel hub, right? So what's really interesting about all of that is in terms of the fifth fleet and the presence there, oil supplies, as you very well know, are no longer going from the Middle East to American or European markets. They're going to Asian markets, right? And the question is for the American people, at what point do they start spending the trillions of dollars it requires to arm this part of the world when the oil supplies aren't going to America, they're going to Asian markets. So you're basically supporting China hmm. at this point. And I think what's really been interesting is seeing the Obama administration did it a different way in terms of walking away from the region. But the Trump administration continued that via maximum pressure, right? And by that hands-off approach, right? That's sort of laissez-faire, like hands-off approach to what MBS, MBZ, and others have been doing here, right? So the question becomes, if Biden opens the door then to Iran, folks here in the UAE and in Saudi Arabia know for sure that they're going to be very much on their own there. And I think that you saw that um, awakening if you will, uh, a year or so ago, you know, when we were seeing um, the oil facilities in Saudi Arabia being attacked, when we saw President Trump, he didn't blink, I think, when he decided not to, you know, attack Iran over the downing of that drone. He just decided it wasn't worth it because the folks here could be left to clean up their own mess. 
And I think that that was one of the things that really galvanized um, this agreement with Israel didn't it? Because they knew that they would want not just this strategic relationship, they also knew it made economic sense um, to open up to Israel. So I think that that's going to be really interesting to see playing out in the future, right? Because I think the Biden administration may or may not continue, frankly, the trend that we've seen via Obama and via uh, Trump himself, which is to strategically hands off from this part of the world. Definitely. Interesting it is. And I guess the perspective changes based on where you, depending on where you are in the Middle East, uh, obviously here in Lebanon, where we're recording, uh, the country is kind of at the mercy of this whole kind of uh, game. But you were one of the first international journalists to go to Saudi Arabia after the Kakogji incident uh, as a journalist working there. Do you ever feel that you can't report freely? Um, do you feel censored at all in your work? And specifically, did what happened when you went there to report on that? I think when we went there, it was just an incredibly sensitive time. I think we were the first international journalists to be on the ground there. I had had a, you know, one of the things about Saudi until very recently, it was tough to get your visa for entry. And we had a we had the ability to be there imme almost immediately after that happened. I mean, this is a situation where, you know, the, Jamal Khashoggi, before he was a columnist, obviously, at the Washington Post, um, he worked for the Saudi government for many, many years. Um, he worked for His Royal Highness Turkey Al-Faisal. That's a gentleman that I have had the privilege to interview many, many times on various different subjects. Um, so this was a person that was, was very familiar with the highest levels of the Saudi government. Um, so the idea that this had happened, um, I think the after, you know, we'd already seen so much controversy surrounding the rise of Mohammed bin Salman. Um, the Riyadh Ritz-Carlton uh, was, was still percolating at that time, you know, when we had this situation where, you know, all of these people um, at the highest levels of Saudi society, uh, the big money guys got thrown in the Riyadh Ritz-Carlton, right? And they weren't allowed out until they basically agreed either to give some of this money back or to find ways to, to put the companies, to IPO the companies so that the, the, the Saudi people could get involved and get some of that wealth back. Um, so it was still a very, very sensitive time. And there was, it felt a very cloak and dagger at that time. I didn't have any pressure from the government. I think all of the government officials were watching CNBC, among others, trying to see how this whole thing was going to play out with the media. Um, I don't think that this was a very um, open dialogue between members of you know the the royal family and their even their ministers i think that this was one of those situations where you saw a real separation between um the royal family itself and the folks that work for them um and it's been an interesting journey to watch how uh, mohammed bin salman has decided to really bring um the government ministries back into the family Um, because you saw early on, you know, an oil minister, Khaled Al-Fala, who was not a member of the royal family. You saw Adel Al-Jubair following um, His Royal Highness Prince Turkey as ambassador to Washington. He had been spokesman um, for the embassy before that time. Um, now you see that position held by a member of the royal family. I think that's actually really, really interesting um, that he's keeping, um, the, he's keeping it all in the family, as you will. Um, the Jamal Khashoggi story was shocking in every sense of the word to cover because up until that point you had seen this young vibrant guy who everybody wanted to put their faith in because he seemed to have you know his finger on the pulse of Saudi society which is a young young society um he understood that that these people were not his people were not going to go quietly anymore um, under these sort of cultural constraints and social constraints that had sort of enslaved the kingdom you know for what 
decades at this point. Um, and, and he was really looking to open things up. And I thought, you know, when I saw Vision 2030, I was like, you know, they were, they were short on details, right, when on, on that first press conference about the vision. But, you know, it was a situation where even if they get halfway there, that's still enormous progress in a very short amount of time for Saudi Arabia. Um, and, and I think, you know, one of those things that, that, that shocked me at the time um, was, was just how quickly the world was willing um, to, to put them on the point of a knife in a sense, like uh, not to not to make light of it. But, you know, it seemed as if the, the entire world was ready um, to condemn Saudi Arabia um, right off the bat, um, in spite of the fact that they were trying so desperately to change the society. And this was all, unfortunately, you know, laid at the feet of, of Mohammed bin Salman, who took full responsibility for what happened. He said, you know, I'm, I'm the guy at the top and this shouldn't have happened on my watch, et cetera, without ever admitting to anything more. Um, I thought it was just incredibly, incredibly disappointing because all of that work he had done with the international business community, which was going to help open up Saudi Arabia, um, you know, and, and, and open up this country for women for the very first time, all of these things that really, really hurt them internationally. They're still on the back foot with Washington um, in a real way. President-elect Biden early on in the campaigns for the nomination had even said that they're a pariah state. I was never personally pressured. Um by anyone in the kingdom to report anything a certain way or another way. I think they were all just waiting to see what happened next um, because it was just all so shocking that, that this could have happened and that they would have done that to one of their own. I'm not sure they're really on a back foot with, with the administration, the current administration at least. Of course, Biden is a different story. That's why I was asking you that question earlier. I feel like they've, on the contrary, they've really joined like the, the global... Oh, no, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Sorry, the administration as in the administration that's coming in. Yeah. So, yeah, but they, is it only because of that incident? I mean, they have uh, other uh, concerns. Uh, you know, they're in, on the one hand, they're opening up, the, you know, giving women's rights, which are all amazing things. I'm always, every day, you know, I read something new that's going on there and, and I talk to people and it's really great what's going on there. And as you said, it's a young society. They're so well educated. Um, it, it's really not the country that it's portrayed, that is portrayed in mainstream media. On the other hand, they do have questionable, you know, human rights records and their treatment totally. of women. And as a woman, I mean, um, the fact that women can drive now, yes, but is it happening fast enough, the, the rights that they're giving women? There's still so much uh, injustice and inequality uh, towards women. So you, so a lot of people just don't agree with that and don't want to be, you know, doing business with a, with a country that, that does those things. Well, this is the thing. International investors want rule of law, right? But the big guys who just want sovereign wealth fund money never stopped going to Saudi Arabia. And they won't. That's just the reality of the situation. So, you know, when you think about your pension fund in the United States, think about who's holding your pension fund and where they're going, right, to invest your money, because they're probably going to be, you know, investing with, you know, whether it be the public investment fund in Saudi Arabia or Mubadala here in the UAE, you know, that's the thing. Investors, money talks. And I think that with the exception of potentially like North Korea and a few other countries, you're not going to see the same level um, of pullback, right? Like Saudi Arabia, you're still going to do business with Saudi Arabia. They may not be publishing, you know, publishing how much they're doing there, but they're certainly still doing it because this is a country that has hundreds of billions of dollars, right? But I think that um, in terms of Saudi Arabia and the current administration, I think they very much had their eyes open um, and they 
decided, they made the strategic decision that they felt it was in America's interest to keep um, that relationship very strong and to isolate Iran. And I think that with the Biden administration, you're not going to see the same thing at all um, because they're going to open up with Iran. And I think that what the last couple of years have shown, at least with the UAE, they've been willing to look at other allies and to really hedge their bets there. Um, but Saudi Arabia hasn't. Yeah. So, so I think that's going to be a really interesting story to see play out as well. And it is, a, it's just a crying shame, honestly, on so many levels that that, that happened. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, uh, it is. It, it is. It is. Definitely. It was a, ho- you know, horrible thing for the whole world to witness. Um, and I think you hit a really good point. I think a lot of investors are going to be looking for a country they can trust with a, a rule of law system where they know what they're getting into. So I think it's just a matter of time for the, you know that country and the GCC to gain uh, investors' trust with trial and error. But um, let's talk about that uh, infamous or famous interview with Lebanon's Gibran Basile that went viral last year. I mean, you, you really roasted a politician in a way that Hadis hasn't been seen uh, before or after or since then. Um, you really didn't mince words. What was your thinking going into that uh, panel and that interview with him? So it's funny, that was the last event that I had in my Davos schedule. I was interviewing the uh, president, the prime minister of Pakistan and the president of Afghanistan. And I had a couple of other major, major interviews. And that panel was sort of tacked on to the back end um, of, of this sort of schedule. So I knew that that was happening, but I wasn't really too focused on it at the very early part of the week. And on Monday, that sort of got in, went everywhere, went viral, that he was going to appear as the former foreign minister. And uh, I think Lebanon went wild and, you know, social media blew up and, you know, there was a huge contingent of people who said he doesn't deserve to represent us. He's, you know, not in power anymore. Yes, he represents the largest political bloc, but he's not, you know, in government now and this, that and the other. And, and you know, I really took the step back and, you know, I've been covering Lebanon for years. It's very dear to my heart. I have many, many people there who I consider to be, you know, loved ones. And, and I was listening and watching to all of that. And it became very, very apparent that, that people wanted to see someone held accountable um, for, for the, you know, gross injustices and corruption that have been plaguing that country. Um, and I think what was really interesting about, about the Gibran story was that, you know, ahead of all of this, you know, nobody holds back when, when they're giving advice, right? So I heard from everybody that I've ever met, I think, in the Middle East ahead of this panel, well, just because everybody had heard about it and there was so much, you know, I don't know, I don't even want to say dread slash excitement about what would happen in that room on that day. Um, but I knew, you know, I know the economics of Lebanon or the misfunctioning, non-functioning economics of that country. I understand the political system as well as one can understand it when one's not living in it. Um, and, I, you know, he isn't the only one by any stretch of the imagination who's culpable um, for or should be held accountable for what's happened in Lebanon. He isn't the only one by far. But he was the one who was flying himself on someone else's plane to Davos to talk about it. and. You know, I was surprised, I have to say, when I sat down um, by the fact that it seemed almost as if he was totally unprepared <laughs> to talk um, and and sort of smiled through the entire interview, which I guess, you know, just made it even more astonishing to me because, you know, I had a, a sort of set list of questions that I was going to get into specifics with him, but I never even really got, got to that point because it, it seemed to me that the real question was, don't you have a moral responsibility to the people that you represent to do the right thing and to go beyond, um, you know, the, the, 
to playing politics. And unfortunately, it seems as if uh, Gibran and, and all of the other politicians who are equally as culpable for the misfunction of Lebanon are not only not going to be held account, they're actually going to continue, many of them, to hold office and remain in power, uh, despite the, the will of the people and the will of the street. Um, so this is a situation that, that continues, I think, to plague all of us who care about the region and care about Lebanon. It's so true, though. Because it's unbelievable. Yeah, it is unbelievable. And it's so true what you said. He was kind of sitting there and smiling and seemed so unprepared. But I think that's a reflection of how deeply disconnected and incompetent uh, a lot of the people in in that government are, that that they're not even playing on the same, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, the same uh, level, uh, the playing field, political playing field as, you know, competent political leaders you know they kind of kind of just always like weasel their way under and you know get by and just have this rhetoric and they never have to face the music because it's such a small country and you know the way that the politics are there um so but but so he's been sanctioned by the u.s um you know recently him and 23 other people under the magnitsky act which was designed to punish corruption and human rights violations supposedly so what are your thoughts on that do you think um there's more to that to those sanctions is it part of this greater plan that we talked about earlier that the trump administration is trying to push through in order to open up um the gcc and and saudi arabia to investment i think that this is all part of maximum pressure right i think that the trump administration believed um, initially, that they could force Iran to the table by, you know, not just taking on um, the country itself, but also taking on its proxies. We know Japan Basile has gotten in bed with Hezbollah on multiple occasions to form governments in, in Lebanon. Hezbollah, of course, the U.S.-designated terror organization, however, a major political party and bloc in Lebanon. There's no denying it. And in spite of the fact that, you know, Brian Hook, who was leading the Iran file, and, and President Trump himself and Jared Kushner all believe that, you know, they can they can force Lebanon uh, to somehow rid themselves of Hezbollah. It's just a, not a reality, um, and that I think will be interesting to see how the Biden administration will will try to tackle that. Um, obviously, forcing them to the table by you know starving them out, if you will, was not something that worked for President Trump, or maybe he just didn't have enough time. Um, but I think that in terms of the realities of the situation for Lebanon itself, I mean, does sanctioning Gibran Fasil really help? Um, in terms of fixing the political stalemate in, in Lebanon, um, you know, you'd love to say yes and sanctioning other people. And there are more, ex you know, sanctions expected on, on, on various other members of, of the political class in, in Lebanon. You'd love to say that that was all going to work out for the best, but you just have to wonder if that's really the case. And, you know, when President Trump is out the door, do those sanctions still apply? Will the Biden administration lift them? You know, these are all kind of questions for the future. But the real question, I think, uh, going forward, you've got a situation where the Beirut explosion, you know, we're, we're months on from that now. No one's been held accountable for that. Um, we had protests in the street for a year. I was there in Lebanon when uh, Hariri declared an economic state of emergency. Now he's likely back in the saddle uh, for another go at this international community doesn't have much to go on here. You know, France has its own problems. They've already tried once before, you know, getting COVID-19 under control is something that 
not just the international community, but the Biden um, administration coming in specifically, it says they want a task force on. I mean, so you've got so many global problems that it seems unlikely that, you know, there's going to be that much. And, and frankly, the GCC, as we've said, lower oil prices means they have less cash to splash, which means they have less interest or availability for putting money anywhere in Lebanon, you know, on, on one side or the other. So you have to wonder at what point it just gets so bad that the Lebanese people go back onto the street and and force politicians out because you already have a completely misfunctioning or dysfunctioning country. You know, the, the, there's not going to be, um, you know, one of the arguments that they had early on in the protest, well, you're hurting commerce, you're hurting business, you're hurting industry. Not really. I mean, they blew up the entire, you know, port area and half the city. So is our protest the answer? <laughs> they couldn't hurt. Yeah, I think at this point, It's like already pretty much, uh, you know, rock bottom. So I'm not sure protests will can really push it down further. Um, but but definitely it's an an interesting time right now, and um, nobody can really predict what will happen. But I know you're really well versed and informed, so I'd love to hear more to discuss this further with you. But I know we're running out of time. But let me ask you this: You've interviewed some pretty important figures, including King Abdullah of Jordan, Egypt's President Sisi, Bill Gates. Um, this is a more of a question from my point of view uh, as a journalist. How do you prepare for these big interviews that you do, Hadley? Because you're so good at what you do. And I'm always so impressed with the way you ask questions in such a uh, sharp, unapologetic uh, way. How do you prepare? You're very kind. Um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of things. I mean, you try to read everything that you can. The wonderful thing about being a journalist, as you know, is that you get to read everything for your job, which, which is like, I don't know how many people can say that for their job, they get to do something that they really enjoy. So I think, I think I try to read everything that I possibly can. I am very fortunate because I have a great group of editorial minds that I work with and, and friends from other networks and, and friends in business and friends elsewhere. And I'm never above immediately going to all of these kind of bright people and saying, what would you ask? What would you say? What's interesting about this to you? Um, because oftentimes it'll, it'll be something that, that hits me that I wouldn't have thought of before necessarily. And also, as you say, you know, not avoiding the big questions in the room. I think in this part of the world, they're always trying to pressure you one way or another. Don't ask this, please don't press on that. But you know, if you don't ask those questions, then you're pretty much making sure that those interviews are moot, right? So there's no sense in, in going in and not asking the real questions. And I think part of that is, is a level of confidence. And as you get older, a level of, of understanding of what it is that you really want to do. And sort of if you've got any kind of legacy, that's what that's the legacy that you want, that you asked interesting questions that you found, um, you know, to be important and that you thought other people might find interesting too. So that's kind of what I do. And I don't try to over-prepare because if I over-prepare, I always mess it up. Yeah. Well, I love that you say that you go to, you, I know what you mean. And you really can't because at the end of the day, you can have your, you know, the questions that you want to ask, but you have to also listen to the person that you're talking to and kind of be naturally, exactly. genuinely curious because because there are things that are going to come up that you might not have thought of. Um, I love that you go. Totally. Yeah. I love that you ask. Uh, and it people, drives my editors crazy. Does it? <laughs> like I only cared about eggs. And I'm like, but this was more interesting. That's That's good. Keep them on their toes. <laughs> so what are you going to be talking about the Women Digital uh, Festival? I think this is fun, 
fantastic. I mean, this is one of those situations. I mean, COVID has changed everything. Um, this is like 2020. I have no words for this year. I can't, I still can't believe we're in November, right? I haven't traveled on an international um, business trip. I've done some traveling, but I haven't done it for work since the end of February when I interviewed the WTHO, excuse me, director in, in Saudi Arabia. So for someone who used to spend like 90% of their time on planes, this has been a really, really tough year. But what's fantastic about this digital festival is it's the ability to have all of these kinds of conversations in spite of the fact that we can't all be with each other. And I think this year, if anything, has taught us how important it is to continue conversations and be connected. Um, I'm absolutely nothing without the team um, and of women around me, um, whether it be my producer or my good, good friends. I, I couldn't, you know, or my mother, I, I don't think that I would be the person that I am. And I know that I, my life would be deeply lacking in something. So I think when you have an opportunity like this one to bring so many different women from different areas and, and I learn things and anytime I'm learning something, it's a good day. So I'm really excited about it. I love it. And I can't wait to, to hear what you have to say and to, to see what I've, all those, uh, people are going to be talking about. So thank you so much again for, for joining us today. I know you're super busy. So thanks so much and best of luck. Keep up the great work. I will try and you do the same. Thank you. That's it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Be sure to click that subscribe button and come back soon. Take care.